Hey, I'm Carl from Champaign, Illinois. Hey, I'm Dan from Arkansas. I'm Joy from St. Louis. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. You know Stephen Tobolowsky as an actor, but his real life is even better. The truth will always trump clever. True is always better than a clever fiction. It's Bullseye. Stephen Tobolowsky is a veteran character actor. Now, he's an author, too. His book, The Dangerous Animals Club, isn't about Hollywood stuff, though. It's about normal stuff in his life, like getting held up at the grocery store or spending Christmas tripping on acid. We'll hear from him. Plus, Dimitri Martin shares one of his favorite hobbies. I like people watching, mostly this one woman. (laughs) The Low Times tells you about some rock records worth pulling from the crates, and you'll hear how soul singer Solomon Burke can absolutely positively tear the house down. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You might recognize Stephen Tobolowski. It might not be for his podcast, The Tobolowski Files, where he tells moving, funny stories from his life. It probably wouldn't be as an author, though he is one. He has a book called The Dangerous Animals Club. If you recognize Stephen Tobolowski, it would probably be for his work as an actor. He's worked in literally hundreds of films and television shows. He was in Spaceballs, L.A. Law. He did a voice in the TV series based on the Disney movie Hercules. And he was in Memento, among many, many, many other credits. But if you recognized him on the street, it would probably be as Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. Ned! Ryerson! Needle nose Ned, Ned the head. Come on, buddy. Case Western High! Ned Ryerson, I did the whistling belly button trick at the high school talent show. Bing! Ned Ryerson got the shingles real bad senior year, almost didn't graduate. Bing! Again! Ned Ryerson, I dated your sister Mary Pat a couple times till you told me not to anymore. Well? Ned Ryerson? Bing! Bing! (laughs) So did you turn pro with that belly button thing, Ned, or No, Phil, I sell insurance. What a shock. Do you have life insurance? Because if you do, you could always use a little more. Am I right or am I right or am I right? Right, right, right. Ned, I would love to stand here and talk with you, but I'm not going to. <laughs> See. If there's a type of character a character actor can play, Stephen Tobolowsky has played it. They say an actor needs to observe both themselves and others, and Tobolowsky is a master observer, as he proves in his book, It's called The Dangerous Animals Club, and it's now available in paperback. Stephen and I spoke last year when the book was first released. Stephen Tobolowski, it's great to have you on Bullseye. Well, thank you so much, Jesse. I feel like we've been waiting for this book to come out so we could get you on the show for like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for like two years or something like that, but I'm I'm so happy that it that the pieces have finally come together. Yeah, me, yeah, me too. Uh, doing a book was probably the hardest work I ever did since I had to sod my own backyard. <laughs> Don't do that. That's a mistake. You, you need help to do that. One, and yeah, go ahead. I was going to say one thing about a difficult acting job is that at the very least you know when it's going to end, right? 
Bing. Bing again. Yeah, when you do an acting job, you have the rap party. But when you write, I discovered you you never stop. It keeps going and going and going. It, it happens at 3 in the morning. It happens at dawn. It it happens at midnight. You never stop writing until the uh, publisher says, you're done. This is it. Now we're printing. <laughs> we're printing this. No more. And uh, it, it's terrifying how it, it takes over your life. A couple years ago, a friend of mine and a friend of yours, uh, Dave Chen, emailed me. He said, I'm starting this podcast with this guy, Stephen Tobolowski. He's an actor. He's been in a million things. Maybe you know him from Groundhog Day. And he said, you know, we, we talked about microphones or something. I don't remember. And um, at the time, Dave said it's going to be stories from his life. And I thought, that sounds like a great five-episode podcast. <laughs> so when you, when you started doing that show, did you already have the idea that you could generate the sheer volume of narrative that you have over the years? Well, yes and no. I, it, I knew that I had a lot of stories, a lot of strange stories that had happened to me. I didn't know that I'd be able to sit in a chair and actually type them, <laughs> type them all out. That was a lot of work. But I, I had a broken neck at the time. And when you have a broken neck and you don't die, uh, you find out you have a lot of time on your hands. There, there isn't a lot you could do. So with that time, I just sat well, I could sit different places, you know. But when you sit in front of the computer, you can write. So when Dave asked me, would you like to start these stories, I began writing that day and haven't stopped since. It it just was kind of like a big snowball coming downhill. It's an interesting thing to me because when he dis- when he described that to me, what I pictured was something that I'm sure you were wary of, nervous about, when you started this project, which is to say that, you know, we live here in Los Angeles and you're not an actor in Los Angeles until you have a one man show about your life where you change hats to change characters. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, boy, that's too true. Yeah. I when when I did the movie Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party, which is, I guess, how David Chen got to meet me. Uh, Robert Brinkman directed that 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 came from spending hours and hours years before in my kitchen drinking Corona beers with with Brinkman and him, me telling stories about getting kidnapped by monks in Thailand and beaten with sticks or being held hostage. Which, by the way, is a one-sentence <laughs> aside in your book. You have so many personal narratives that the time you got kidnapped by monks and beaten with sticks is one— Oh, and also I was kidnapped by monks and beaten by sticks. Yeah. And and uh, held hostage at gunpoint in a grocery store. That doesn't happen to a lot of people. And swimming with jellyfish in, in the Bahamas. You know, there were a lot of things that happened to me. I knew I could tell the stories. It, it just I didn't know I could tell them in such a formal way. And a funny thing that happens. Now, this is different about from acting and writing, too. Besides the rap party, when a famous phrase with actors is, on to the next when you're done with a job, you are done. But when you're writing, somehow that story begins informing another story before you finish. And that's kind of what happened with the podcast. I would be writing one story with one part of my brain, and then the other part of my brain said, well, Stephen, if you're writing this, you should tell this story next. And I would begin almost immediately. That's uh, the contagion of writing, pretty much.
Well, I don't want to start teasing these bits of narrative without uh, blowing them up a little bit. So (laughs) maybe we could start with something that you write about in the book and just alluded to, which is uh, being held at gunpoint in a grocery store. What were the circumstances? (laughs) Well, you were shopping for groceries, I presume. (laughs) My girlfriend, Beth. I was I was 25 and I was living in Dallas at the time by SMU. Sent me to the grocery store to get fixins for dinner, and I guess it was going to be chicken breast and Italian Swiss colony wine because we like the cheap stuff. And while I was in the grocery store, I happened to see this sign off on the side of the store for mangoes, which captured my imagination. I mean, mangoes. <laughs> believe it or not, mangoes were were was was a new fruit in Texas at the time. We knew about it from Mutiny on the Bounty and all those books, but we had never seen a mango. So I thought, well, Beth has a funny sense of humor. What if I brought her back some mangoes with the Italian Swiss colony wine? And while I'm checking the mangoes, because I didn't know how to tell if one was ripe or not. This man comes up to me, considerably older than I was, and he put his hand on the front of my shopping cart, which is just wrong. It's intense, right? It's a violation. It's a violation. Mm -hmm. I mean, I grew up in Texas where a man's grocery cart is sacrosanct. I mean, you don't touch someone else's. It's like touching someone else's belt buckle. I mean, you don't do it except by invitation. Uh, This guy looks in the shopping cart and says, oh, I see you have mangoes. The most exotic of fruits. We should explain that the man was Sean Connery. <laughs> I wish. Uh, God, he looked like a little leprechaun. He was he was probably sixty and had gray slicked back hair, puffy red face, watery blue eyes. And when the guy looked at my mangoes, he began to cry, which is a bad sign. Yeah. I mean, I knew I knew at the age of 25 there were many reasons that could bring one to tears, but mangoes would never be one of them. So I'm thinking I'll give this guy a mango and he will go away. And I reached down into the shopping cart and from my new perspective, my new point of view, I saw he had a 45 caliber handgun behind his back on his hip. And at that point, I knew I was dead. I mean, my brain, my heart, my soul, they all went blank, and I stood up, and he, I assume, saw the soullessness in my eyes, and he said, I don't know why I picked you today, and he whipped around and put the gun in the middle of my forehead. I'm looking out of the corner of my eye, and I see the store is deserted. I guess I was so busy picking the mangoes out and shaking them to see if they were ripe, I missed the mass exodus when the crazy guy with the gun walked in. With the gun pressed in my forehead, he said, I've contracted brucellosis. It's a cattle disease from South America. It leads to suicide or homicide. And I'm thinking, man, just my luck. Today it had to be homicide. I mean, just another roll of the dice. It could have been suicide and we'd all be out of this mess. And amazingly, as he pressed the gun in my forehead, I had this incredible thought. I thought of Chad Everett. And Medical Center. Medical Center was a very popular show at the time, Jesse. You're too young of a whippersnapper to remember that show. But it was not only on in the evening in prime time, but in the day it was on in syndication. And on that show, they talked about hostage situations. And Chad Everett said on that show, you had to keep the gunman talking. 
Well, of course, I had no idea how to do that. But I knew how to talk. So I started fabricating this incredible story about my father. And I said, you know, you remind me of my father, which, of course, this guy didn't. I said, said, you know, my father is, especially with the gun, yeah. My father looks a little bit like a leprechaun (laughs) and talks sort of like Sean Connery. And always carries a gun on it. Yeah. And and I began fabricating this incredible story of me and my father talking a million miles an hour and what was so remarkable about this, that while I'm talking, again, with one part of my brain, with the other part of my brain, I'm looking out the front window of the store and I see SWAT team guys running back and forth under the window with their guns, with their helmets, with their bulletproof vests. I see the back of a reporter's head uh reporting live from the scene, I hear a helicopter coming down from above us, and then just a piece de resistance, uh, uh, an ambulance pulls up into the parking lot, the back doors open up, and out comes a gurney and a body bag. And while I'm talking, I'm thinking, one of them is for him, one of them is for me. Uh, And I feel the adrenaline start to... Now, I've been talking, Jesse, for about 45 minutes, And I feel the adrenaline start to wear out. And a voice came into my head and said, Stephen, time to do something different. You need to do something different than the story of your dad now. And so I couldn't think of anything. An escape was impossible. So all I could think to do was to invite the man over for dinner, which I know probably wasn't a great idea. (laughs) Uh, He seemed companionable (laughs) enough. (laughs) At this point in time, I'm saying, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm getting a lot out of this. I'm getting all this stuff worked out about my dad. Are, are you okay? Hey, are you doing anything tonight? I mean, are you busy later today? Because I got to get this chicken on the grill, and maybe you could come over and have a little chicken and show me how to cut the mangoes. We have a glass of wine. Hey, look, why don't I just give you my address? You follow me over to the house. And the guy grabs some of the brown paper bag from the mangoes. I tear and in a, mo- a scene that would never be in a movie, the guy's still got the gun in my forehead. He reaches into his shirt pocket and hands me a pen. And I was so scared at this point and so exhausted for the life of me, I could not think of a phony address. So <laughs> I write down my real address, 3431 McFarland. There you go, my good friend. Come on over. 60 West Addison, Chicago, <laughs> Illinois. Yeah, come on over. Please come over. You'll meet my girlfriend. We'll have some mangoes and wine. We'll have a great time together tonight. And then came the worst part of the whole experience that I had to get past him. He's still in front of me with the gun in my forehead. So I push around him and I feel the gun. He puts it in the back of my head. And that voice came back in my head saying, don't turn around. Don't turn around, Stephen. Whatever you do, don't turn around. Just keep walking. Just keep walking. And I kept on walking, and there was a display of Pepsi-Colas on the corner uh, of the aisle. And the voice said, Stephen, you know, if you get past those Pepsis, you're free. You could run. Just make it to the Pepsis, and you will live. And so I kept walking, and I got to the Pepsis, and I made the turn, and I didn't have to run. Because unbeknownst to me, during the 45-minute blather about me and my father, the SWAT team had come in the back of the store using my 
narrative, my monologues as cover, they came down adjacent aisles and had their guns pointed at us through the food the entire time. The entire time, the cops were there during this entire discussion. And as I rounded the corner, the police jumped over the aisles at the grocery store. And next time you're in a grocery store, take a look at how high those aisles are. That They jumped over those and had my potential dinner guest bound and gagged in about eight seconds. And they carried him out on their shoulders like a, like a snake, you know, like a carpet all tied up. And then I ended up wandering in the deserted store and went to the empty checkout counter and waited. <laughs> and the policeman came up to me and says, hey, buddy, you could just go. <laughs> and it was the only time, Jesse, I ever left a grocery store without paying for my groceries. <laughs> I mean, that that's like a – that's a nightmare that I can't even imagine. <laughs> no, and and, and – what I try to do in Dangerous Animals Club, what I try to do in all my stories, and this evolved over time, was I tell stories that are true that happened to me. Those are the only two requirements because I learned over time and maybe through being an actor that I learned that the truth will always trump clever. True is always better than a clever fiction. And when I think when an audience hears the story and the truth, like when you hear the Chad Everett bit, I mean, you know that's true. It's too stupid for it not to be true. <laughs> it had to be. And the, the fact that I gave the guy my real address. And I think that when you tell stories that are true, suddenly your stories can become everybody's stories because they recognized that, that there's no, no barrier between them and you. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Stephen Tobolowski, a veteran character actor who you might know from Groundhog Day, Deadwood, or Glee. His book of stories is called The Dangerous Animals Club. It's out now in paperback. We're on the radio right now. Yeah. And America, if, if they don't remember what you look like from Groundhog Day or Glee or something like that, uh, may not know that you are a bald man. Um, I, too, I feel comfortable broaching this subject because I'm well on my way at the age of 31. Um, but I, I feel like that is so relevant to an actor's career. Um, like so – I mean I know that for me as a person who in my day-to-day -day life – I don't really care about the fact that I'm going bald. I'm married to a beautiful woman. I'm confident in my interactions with others, et cetera. But then when I see myself on screen, when I'm doing something on camera, I'm like, oh, geez, look at that bald guy. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> Who let a bald guy on television? <sighs> um, so first of all, you talk a little bit in the book about sort of discovering that you were going to become bald. Mm. And, and there's sort of almost being an actual moment in your life. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about when you had that realization, because I can really relate to it. Well, when, when I was young uh, in college wanting to be an actor, at that point in time, we always thought being an actor was something noble. And we always imagined we were going to be playing Hamlet someday or Macbeth or do something grand on stage to be a young romantic hero. I went to the University of Illinois, and as often happens in college and graduate school, uh, I got cast as an old man. And so their solution for me being old, even though I was only 24 years old at the time, was to spray my head with streaks and tips. 
for every performance. So I look like a bad high school actor uh, in the diary of Anne Frank. It, you know, it, I was in uh, Tom Stoppard's Jumpers, and I was playing an 80-year-old man. So rather than put a wig on my head to where I would look like in kind of a older transsexual granny clampet, instead they— <laughs> yeah, mama's family type situation. <laughs> yeah. Instead, they spray-painted my head. So after two weeks of doing this show, of spray-painting my head, I didn't think anything about it. Last day, we finished the show, and I went home thinking, job well done, Stephen. You managed to pull off this 84-year-old man. I get in the shower, start washing out the streaks and tips, and my hair starts coming out in clumps. I mean in clumps. It's like I was in the movie Silkwood and I was around the nuclear material for too long. I mean, it was coming out in handfuls. And you have a picture of yourself as, a, as a, I presume, like a 20-ish year old in the book. And there is – you have a spectacular volume of hair. Like you didn't just have hair. You had full-on like 1972 just – feather it till the cows come home type hair. Yeah, it was hair that that when the wind blew and I looked at my shadow on the ground, I looked like a diadem. (laughs) It just, it looked like some sort of beautiful flower, uh, my hair, like (laughs) in the shadow of my hair. Well, at this point, after this shower, it was the last time, Jesse, in my life I ever looked like a young man. That one hour in the shower. Well, I wasn't in the shower in an hour, but if you count the drying time and the crying time afterwards, <laughs> uh, I, from that point on, no one was able to look at my eyes without their eyes darting up to look at my vanishing hairline. And at that point in time, I felt my dream of becoming a romantic lead in acting was gone. And I had to begin making the internal internal transformation of saying, well, instead of being Hamlet, maybe I'll be captain of the guard. You know, maybe I'll be, boy, I can't even be Horatio at this point. Now I'm just going to have to wait it out and hope to get to Claudius. It, it, was, a, it was brutal. And I'm trying to, there have been other times in my life since then that I've cried. Uh, but this was a life crisis. But as you said, I grew up, you know, I ended up married to a beautiful woman. I have a career. It it turned out not to be an issue for me uh, being bald. So if you're young out there and you're losing your hair, don't worry about it. It, it. it isn't going to matter that much. What's funny about it is that for an actor like you, um, it, on the one hand, it prevents you from becoming Brad Pitt. There are no bald Brad Pitts in the world. No. And that's a bummer. I mean, it seems like it would be a real blast hanging out with all those children and Angelina Jolie and whatnot. <laughs> However, um, it does sort of it, it does sort of drop you into the world in which you flourished. Like there's no there's no moment in your life because of this because this turning point happened so profoundly and it was such a hard turn. There's no long, long string of disappointments that lead to a place where now every time you get a gig that isn't a lead, you're disappointed. I mean, I have a friend, a family friend, who is exceptionally handsome. 
and was a soap opera star and a very talented actor. At one point, he was almost James Bond. And he's not, he's a real estate agent now, and he's only 50-ish. And the reason is because he had all of his career eggs in the get a load of how handsome I am basket. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. again, a talented actor as well. Then that was not even what it was about. So what did it help you sort of change who you thought of who you were in a way for the better? Eventually. Eventually it did. Uh, there, there, was, there was a period of time where I was thinking about, uh, boy, this was even before they had plugs. But, but I realized the uh, evacuation of my follicles were, was happening faster than uh, any sort of medical science could, cosmetic science could catch up to me. So I had to adapt and just go, you know, in one way, something you say is absolutely true, Jesse, in that you become more the theater actor that you always were which is what I've always been. Losing your hair doesn't matter when you're on stage. It doesn't matter if you're playing Uncle Vanya if you have hair or don't have hair. It does matter if you're Brad Pitt. And it does matter. You, you, learn, you learn the advantages and the excitements of playing smaller roles, of being character actors. You learn that the entire enterprise in a film is not resting on your shoulders financially. So if a if a film tanks, it's not your fault. Your career isn't hurt. But I know several leading men in which the film tanked, and they had difficulty getting another role. You know, they would be in line to be selling real estate, too, just because they couldn't keep making that big box office off of their name. I don't have that problem. And then you have all the fun of being on many, many, many different sets in the course of a year. And meeting different people and being in different work situations. So you learn – for me, the advantages came later after, after I got through the trauma of losing my first dream. <laughs> More stories from Stephen Tobolowsky and a clip from Deadwood that's actually safe to play on the radio. All after a break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This is Cameron Esposito. I'm Rhea Butcher. This is Ricky Carmona. And we have a great action and sci-fi movie podcast. That's right, great, on the Maximum Fun Network. It is called Wham Bam Pow. Every week we review an amazing movie about blow-em-ups. We call it a dick flick. Yeah, we do. And you can tune in to the movies on Netflix Watch Instant. Maybe they're in theaters. It's going to change your life. You can subscribe on iTunes or listen at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Stephen Tobolowsky, has acted in hundreds of films and television episodes, but his book isn't about Hollywood gossip. It's funny, intimate stories about normal life stuff, like spending Christmas Eve tripping on acid. The book is called The Dangerous Animals Club. It's out in paperback. Stephen and I spoke last year. Um, I've, I have done re- precious little acting as a professional. However, um, the co-host of uh, my other show 
is a professional actor. He's never happy about the characters that he gets sent in to audition for <laughs> because he is he just he comes he comes to me and he says just once I would like to read for uh, lawyer 27 attractive <laughs> <laughs> so have you have you ever auditioned for a character where um, where you went in and you saw that that log line that that couple of senses of description of the character and you just said oh come on give me a break <laughs> Yes, uh, when you want to die. Uh, when I almost died, uh, when I had my broken neck, uh, coming back from that, it was very difficult to to get work. And I, you played well. You auditioned for a lot of actor twenty seven can't move head. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I, this was just like five years ago, something like that, when I broke my neck, and I did send out the desperate email in my life to everybody I kind of knew and said. Guys, girls out there, I haven't worked in a long time because of this injury. If any of you have any part I could play, I will do it. And I got one response back from Rob Hedden, who is a wonderful writer, director, funny guy. And he says, Tobo, I'm just putting the finishing touches on a new movie, and I've written a part specifically for you. Because of your letter, I've written a part for you. I'm sending over the script now. My, I gotta tell you, I was burst. I was almost in tears with joy. The script arrived by messenger. Still in this day, you had a messenger service back then instead of an email. I opened the script. I'm tearing through it to find the part which Rob Hedden had written for me. It was the part. The slug line was, "Butt crack plumber." <laughs> I'm dying. I'm saying like, and he wrote this with me in mind. It, it didn't end there. I go to the costume fitting, and there I'm, I'm, I have these two costume designers says, well, could you get on your hands and knees, please? Can you pull those jeans down a little bit? And then they start talking to one, one another. You know, I don't really see a lot of crack. Do you see a lot of crack? Uh <laughs> How did you get this part? <laughs> I said, favors, man, favors. <laughs> you know, actors have specialized headshots depending on what kind of role they're going out for. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes. Oh, dear. Yeah, that was one of the worst. That was one of the worst. Buttcrack plumber. That was bad. What part that you've played in, in your bajillions of years of career did you have the lowest expectations for that surprised you? Wow. Wow. That I had the Okay, Here, here's one, Freaky Friday. Freaky Friday. I I figured, okay, here's a Disney movie, that's a remake of their old Freaky Friday. Mhm. I'm playing the the teacher. Okay, we have Lindsay Lohan in it who's this girl who was in The Parent Trap. Uh, okay, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, she's good. Uh, we'll we'll see what this is. And I, and I remember when I was asked to come see the first screening of Freaky Friday, uh, the director's cut of it. I was trembling. It was so beautiful, and it was so brilliant from beginning to end, and I just started gushing at the end uh, to the director 
Mark Waters, and I was just directing, going like, this is one of the most brilliant scenes I've ever, this movie is brilliant. I can't believe how brilliant. And I think I think I made him ill with, with all the praise. But I, it was extraordinary. And and still, it's it's one of the most extraordinary movies I've ever been in. It is just splendid top to bottom. And I certainly didn't expect it. What about in terms of experience? Um, were you ever were you ever called into something that you assumed would be a, a nightmare process that turned out to have something special about it or something that you learned from it? Uh, there have been a lot that that were surprising. Uh, Deadwood, I had no idea, would be a nightmare process. <laughs> you didn't read that uh, New Yorker article no, about I, David Milch? No. I thought Deadwood was going to be kind of a normal Western experience, and I had no idea that that process was the definition of a nightmare. But at the same time, it was clearly one of the most extraordinary pieces of work ever on television. I mean, to call Deadwood a television show is a misnomer. I think I mentioned in the book that it's like calling the rings of Saturn space dust. It It is extraordinary on every level. But I thought it was going to be a normal show. Walking into it, I had no idea that they would never wash your clothes because they wanted the stains to be consistent over the months <laughs> you were shooting. Now, here's the thing about this show. I mentioned that New Yorker article because I remember reading that New Yorker article, which detailed David Milch, the creator of the show, lying on his back in a room, high on pain pills, because he had a, a very, very bad back, and presumably still does, um, just basically zonked out of his mind with just rambling in the crazy swear talk of Deadwood. <laughs> Is the best I can describe it. If you haven't seen Deadwood, I mean, it's like a it's a otherworldly experience, as you said. And um, he sounds like the most insane man ever to be in charge of tens of millions of dollars. <laughs> he was he was either his brilliance was part of his insanity. His insanity was part of his brilliance. The apocryphal story about Deadwood, I do not know if this is true. This is just what I heard, is that David Milch always wanted to do a show about the beginning of civilization at the time of Rome and about the conflicts of the refinements of civilization coming head to head with the barbaric violence of the time. And he went to have the meeting with HBO. And, oh, I also should mention he wanted the show to be done in Latin <laughs> with subtitles. Uh, he went to have the meeting with HBO and they said, well, David, you know, what we're really looking for is a Western. And that Mr. Milch said, oh, well, it's the same thing. <laughs> and Deadwood was born. And that all of the talking in backward Shakespeare and all of the profanity David Milch was creating the foreign film he wanted to create in that people cannot watch Deadwood without going back and forth over that dialogue to see what the hell are people talking about. Friends become adversaries. Become now, I hope, friends again. Doing any good for yourself? Oh, Heart of late Adams doing that in Yankton. Now that is something you would be aware. What I read on the crapper. Washington harasses us for our difficulties in distribution to the Indians, 
thereby distracting the nation at large from Washington's own physical turpitudes and miasms. They're amongst the turpitudes and miasms you got caught stealing the money. The money was not stolen. There was an amount of siphoning off and certain irregularities. And again, you could take a look at Deadwood. It is the perfect template of what would be the ancient Roman Empire coming into being with the beginning of this territory of the United States now becoming a town, now becoming part of a state, and the conflict of the Wild West conflicting with civilization. It it was a remarkable, remarkable show on just about every possible level you could find. I, I, what I hear you saying is that Deadwood as a television program is sort of like a pre-Vatican II mass. <laughs> <laughs> like you're just sort of, sort, of, sort of supposed to get the experience of the thing even if you don't speak the language. The, it, it, it spoke it, – it had various narratives going. The visual narrative was so powerful like with two people wrestling in the street and one of them gets his eye pulled out. You know, there's a certain visual narrative to that that you – Understand, as a viewer. Uh, Then there is the profanity, which we all understand and are repelled by and fascinated by at the same time. And so there is a visceral push-pull that always happened with Deadwood. And then there is just the basic story of evil versus good, of Swearingen versus Sheriff Bullock and Tim Oliphant in, in that role. There is that Good is never quite always good, and evil is never always quite evil, but damn, is it entertaining to watch. And Deadwood worked on all those levels. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actor Stephen Tobolowski. He's got a collection of personal essays inspired by the storytelling on his podcast, The Tobolowski Files. The book is called The Dangerous Animals Club. It's out now in paperback. You have this remarkable artistic legacy. I mean, I'm sure you're, if you're not, you should be exceptionally proud of the work that you've done. Um, and part of, but part of writing this book strikes me as being about representing yourself, which is something that you always have to do in a sort of slanted way as an actor. Yes, yes, uh, yes. You put it better, I think, than I've heard anyone put it before. In in terms of this book, even by indirection, because I didn't want to write the book in a chronological order at all, because I wanted the book to work the way human thought works. I, I think it's an artificial construct to say that we live our life past, present, and future. When we think and we talk, our brains are going all over the place, back and forward, through through indirection, this book became the one time where it's been the story of me. Uh, as an actor, you're right. You get slivers of truth. You get little bits of me here and there. So, but through this book, this is as naked as I've been, as as open as I've been, and the reader has the opportunity to put the pieces together and see kind of what the narrative is of what the initial part of the dream was or maybe where the dream started, where where it required strength to carry on through difficulty and where it ended up, whether it be something grand like Groundhog Day or something like Buckrack Plumber. I mean, both places took a lot of effort to get to. What story um, that you've told in the book or on your show 
was the scariest to tell? Oh, I think the the one that caught me off guard the most was telling the story of the day my mother passed away in that I wrote the story and I was absolutely fine. And then in telling the story, the story became kind of bigger than me. And I had a great deal of difficulty in complete in writing that and, and in telling that story. That is in the book. I think in the podcast, The Tobolowski Files, one of the most difficult stories for me to tell was about my own prejudice uh, growing up, uh, making fun of people, hurting people deeply. When I grew up, I, I believe that podcast is called Man in the Closet. And one one story I remember, uh, there was our physics teacher, Melvin Moses, and he had any number of things you could make fun of. Uh, he was bald and wore a toupee that was never straight affixed to his head. He had something wrong with his mouth to where whenever he talked, he kept making clicking noises. Uh, he probably was gay. I'm assuming he was probably gay. Uh, he was a short man and... Uh, kept running into things. There were any number of things you could have made fun of him. And I was in high school, and I was down at the other end of the school. I was in my speech room, and my teacher told me she had to go do something to take over the class. So I took over the class, and I pretended to be Melvin Moses. And I came in the class, and I started clicking and trying to adjust my pretend toupee. And I started bumping into things on the table. And and the class was laughing uproariously. And then of all things, Melvin Moses walked in the room. Melvin Moses, the physics room, was on the opposite side of the high school. I mean, hundreds of yards away. The The odds that he would come in this room were like zero and none. And he walked in the room and everybody in the room started shrieking with enormous laughter. And Mr. Mel, Mr. Moses saw kind of what I was doing. And he could have done any number of things. He could have walked out. He could have dressed me down right there in the room, but he did not. He walked in and sat on the front row, and he said, Continue, please. No, the the class seems to be amused. I'd like to see what you're doing. Please, continue. And I stood there, and I continued, because I felt I owed it to him at that point in time to be honest about my cruelty. And it is a moment that I have regretted my entire life. Uh, I I just came back from the, I've done one leg of the book tour in Dallas. And I met some of my high school mates that were there that day. And they still talk about it. They talked about Mr. Moses sitting there in class, and they talked about when I imitated him. It made an impression on them, too, and it made me write that the one thing about regret is that it is an honest and constant companion. I want to ask you this question that um, you write about in the book, because I feel like I'd be a real so-and-so if I didn't. (laughs) 
you insist that the one good interview question, if you were interviewing people, is to ask them, tell me about the first time you fell in love. So, please. First time I fell in love, I guess. I was five years old. I fell in love with the girl down the street, Alice Nell Allen, but I misunderstood what her name was. The whole time I knew her, that I always thought her name was Alice Snail Allen. <laughs> and I loved snails. And I thought, what a great thing to be in love with a girl that's actually named Snail. And Alice used to wear this shirt that had the wildflowers of Texas on it. And it was it was a yellow flannel shirt with their names on it. Uh, I proposed marriage to her. I climbed up my mimosa tree and picked a couple of mimosa blossoms and ran down the street, asked her to marry me when I was five. She came out and said she would, and she kissed me on the cheek, and I kissed her, and I still remember, Jesse, what that cheek felt like when I kissed it so soft. And I ran home and told my mom, I'm going to get married. I just proposed to Alice Snail. And mom said, that's nice. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be moving out on my own. What, one thing about telling stories that are true is that they continue. So I talked to Alice last year. I called her up on the phone and I said, I've written a story that includes you, Alice. And she said, well, there's a part of the story you don't know. Is that uh, I was in an abusive home as a child. Uh, my mother and father used to beat me, and I remember my mother once came into my room with a gun and said, tonight is the last night you're going to live, and so do whatever you want to do. This is it. And she said, I lay in my bed, and I was wearing my Wildflowers of Texas shirt, and I thought, you know, Stephen and the Tobolowskis will come down and save me. They'll come down and save me. As it turned out, it was Alice's uh, maid, Claudie, who came in and saved her and, and separated Alice from her family. Uh, Alice said that that shirt, the wildflowers of Texas, inspired her her entire life. And she went into medicine because she thought, if I could learn the real names of these wildflowers of Texas in Latin, I could be a doctor. I could make something of myself. And Alice, her entire life, supported Claudie uh, into her old age and left home immediately as soon as she could and still supported her parents uh, until they passed on. So even though that was one person I ended up not marrying, she was certainly a person of great, great, great worth. Yeah, it's one that got away. Well, Stephen, I, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. Well, thank you so much, Jesse. Stephen Tobolowski. We spoke last year just after his book, The Dangerous Animals Club, was published. It's available now in paperback. You can also listen to his show, The Tobolowski Files, wherever you download podcasts. It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. 
You may have seen Dimitri Martin on his Comedy Central show, Important Things. He's obsessed with problem-solving and unraveling linguistic ironies. On the show, Martin made diagrams on a whiteboard and projected slides overhead. But last year, he put aside the whiteboard to record an album of dry observations. It's called Stand-Up Comedian. I like people watching, mostly this one woman. Yeah. I'm doing them one at a time. (laughs) From behind bushes and stuff, you know. I think surprise parties are weird because people jump up and they yell the word surprise at the party. I came home to my house and you guys emerged from my furniture. You don't have to tell me how to feel. I don't need like a hint from the group, you know? It's not like if you yell out another feeling, I'm gonna have that one instead. I come home and everybody jumps up. Confidence! Oh, all right, yeah. Damn right, I feel great. <laughs> Got to spend an hour at the party answering questions like, hey, so were you really confident when we jumped up and yelled out confidence? <laughs> yeah, I wasn't faking. I had no idea. I was confident. I mean, I came in feeling kind of lousy about myself, and I felt, yeah, really self-assured. It's a great confidence party. I'm so glad you guys were up for me. <laughs> My friend has hand soap that smells like coconut, which is great, very nice. Unless your hands are dirty from coconuts. Then it's a disaster, it's the worst soap possible. I can't tell if I made any progress in this situation. This is how my hands started out, this sucks. See somebody smelling their hand, I feel like there's never a good story behind that. It just looks negative, you know? If you try to make it look positive, it looks even worse. You see a guy who's like... Let's go talk to that guy. He's pretty happy about whatever he put his hand in. (laughs) No good. If you're on a bus and you want to save that seat next to you, open. People are getting on, just smell your hand as they walk by you. How you doing? You want to take a whiff of this? What is this? Is this good? You can sit here, by the way. Is this human? What is this? Oh, all right. Thanks. Yeah. Dimitri Martin's album Stand Up Comedian is available on CD and DVD. You can also catch him alongside Lake Bell in the recent film In a World. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week on the show, we check in with some favorite culture critics to recommend stuff that's worth your time. We're doing all-time rock and roll tunes with our friends from the Low Times podcast, Maggie Sirota, Tom Sharpling, and Daniel Ralston. Hey, gang. How's it going? Hey, Jesse. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Jesse. Um, Maggie, I want to start with you and this song from the Pet Shop Boys called What Have I Done to Deserve This?
So if you didn't recognize the guest vocalist on that track, that's Dusty Springfield. Tell me a little bit about why you love this song so much, Maggie. I love the Pet Shop Boys, but I can understand how a lot of the time they sound very much like a relic of their time. And I think Dusty Springfield's voice is very kind of warm and like just kind of very warm and deep. And I think that really adds something. It kind of makes that song, gives the song a timeless quality. Tom, let's talk about a really fascinating, bizarre, amazing song by an artist called Tony Joe White. The song's called Stud Spider. And before we listen to it, maybe you can give us some idea of what we're about to hear. Well, there's this comp that kind of pulls together a lot of crazy records from the early 70s called Country Funk that Light in the Attic put out. And a lot of these songs... Like, well, the, the, the name country funk, that makes no sense. Like, what is country <laughs> funk? But then you hear this thing, and it actually kind of is country Some funk. It's these country dudes singing over these crazy, like, funk backbeats and, and kind of, you know, Curtis Mayfield guitars. And it's completely insane. But it's, it really works. I have searched for a long time Trying to find some satisfaction I have known some lovely ladies in my time But they only give me a mild reaction Oh, I feel into your will and you love me all through the night. Well, you got me under your spell. So a lot of hip-hop producers have, in the past, sampled country drums. They really like country snares. Um, that sounds like a full country breakbeat that could go into a hip-hop record right now. Oh, my God. Yeah, this, this record is just packed with stuff like that. It, uh... It's it's a begging for people to sample. I'm sure it's already been mined with stuff. And when you listen to this whole collection of these songs, which are, you know, Tony Joe White sang the song uh, Rainy Day in Georgia, which was a uh, an actual hit that was kind of more of a soulful country song with the swelling strings. But uh, I like to think of if there ever was a... Sanford and Son movie back in the 70s. A lot of these songs should have been on the soundtrack. And you all my desires when I'm Daniel, let's talk about Bill Fox and the song Bonded to You. Here's a little bit of it. Bonded to you, you know I'm bonded to you, little darling, bonded to you, oh yeah. 
That's a beautiful song, Daniel. Tell me a little bit about Bill Fox and his background. Uh, he was the lead singer and chief songwriter in an indie pop band from Ohio called The Mice. And <laughs> it's a really tragic story. He was literally on the bus on the way to New York to be signed by Seymour Stein and Sire Records. And he had a nervous breakdown. And he went back to Ohio and he's battled. He made two perfect records right in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s. And he kind of fell off the face of the earth for about 10 years. There's all these rumors that he was working at a telemarketer. He was in all kinds of mental treatment facilities. But about a year ago, a video started showing up on YouTube of him like third on the bill at some show in Cleveland. He's playing music again and actually making some really great music. And Bonded to You is one of my favorite songs. And if you let me pick you up, I will never set you down on the mountains or the coast in the country or the town. Daniel, thank you. Daniel Ralston suggests Bonded to You by Bill Fox off his album Transit Byzantium. Tom Sharpling recommends the completely insane Stud Spider by Tony Joe White off the compilation album Country Funk 1969 through 1975 which you can get from Light in the Attic Records and Maggie Sirota recommends the Pet Shop Boys collaboration with Dusty Springfield. What have I done to deserve this from their album Actually? Maggie, Tom, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us on Bullseye. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks, Jesse. You can catch Maggie, Tom, and Daniel on their podcast Low Times at lowtimespodcast.com. Every week on Bullseye, we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. There's this old story that when Solomon Burke headlined the Apollo in New York, he used to set up shop in the house while the openers performed. When I say set up shop, I mean that literally. The story is that while the first couple acts were doing their thing, he'd be in the cheap seats selling sandwiches to patrons, you know, to make a little pocket money. And then a few minutes later, he'd go up on stage and tear the house down. Because if there's one thing Solomon Burke knew he could do, no matter what, no matter how many sandwiches he'd just been selling in the concert hall, it was tear the house down. So when he performed, Solomon Burke sat on a huge throne in the middle of the stage. It was huge because Burke was huge in every possible way. He had a huge voice, huge charm. And at his peak, he must have weighed 300 pounds. There's only one great album-length recording of Solomon Burke performing live, but it's enough. It's called Soul Alive. I want everybody, everybody in the house tonight, all around the world, Come on and put your hands together. Get up on your feet. Let's shake this place tonight. Let me see you shake your stuff. It's Washington, D.C., 1983. On the radio then in the district, it's 
I guess Rick James, Lionel Richie, Michael Jackson. In this little club, though, where Solomon Burke is performing, it's nothing about the king of pop. It's all about the king of rock and soul. Soul Alive is a show, a a real show, a journey. An hour and a half of a man pulling the audience, pushing the audience, teasing the audience. He challenges the crowd. He says, you're not with me tonight. They yell back, we are. Are you with me tonight? By the time he tells them to love his big, fat, fine self, that's what he says, big, fat, fine self. I'll bring my big, fat, fine self They are mesmerized. They are enthralled to King Solomon. And if you're listening to the album, so are you. On Soul Alive, it might as well be 1983 or 1967 or 2006. What's important is that Solomon Burke is being Solomon Burke. He's pleading and preaching and doing what he did best. Tearing the house down. That's my outshot. When you're waiting for a boss to come in the night, there's no one. Don't you feel like crying? Don't you feel like crying? Oh, baby, I need your love. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith, senior producer Nick White. Our intern is Henry Malofsky. Interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music is provided by the Go Team, thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me, jesse at MaximumFun.org, or post in our forum at forum.maximumfun.org. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.